Good evening. About 700 years ago, an Italian poet took a journey through hell. At least, he wrote a poem about it. In the first book of his magnum opus, The Divine Comedy, Italian poet Dante Alighieri in the 14th century wrote The Inferno, in which he described being guided by another poet, Roman poet Virgil, through hell. It's technically a poem, but if you had to read it in high school, that's a full-on novel. And it's a bit of a mixture of things. It's a mix of some uh, contemporary at the time and a Catholic teaching, some philosophy of Aristotle, and a little bit of Dante's own political opinions mixed in as well. Because as he goes with his guide on this trip, first he starts out outside and he meets nice, well-meaning people the Greek philosophers, the people that were born and died before Jesus came. And according to his understanding, he thought, well, they couldn't obey Jesus because they were born and died before he came. That's some bad luck. So they essentially stay in like a campsite outside of hell where they're not being tormented. They just don't get to go to heaven because they were just born at the wrong time. If they had been born later, they were so smart, they would have obeyed, obviously. So he's the first people they meet. And as he goes through with his guide, things seem to get worse, at least in his opinion, as he goes through different circles, as he describes it. Going in, he meets the people that are here because of their greed and sees their types of punishment. And then going further, he sees people that are here because they struggled with anger. And going further, he meets the violent sinners that are now here in what he describes as hell. Until finally, he reaches the center of the inferno. And ironically, in the center of the inferno, it's very cold. In fact, everything is frozen here. And right in the very middle is Satan himself, suspended upside down, massive, frozen in ice, with three faces and three mouths. Right here in Dante's description of hell, where the absolute worst have to be in the center, here is Satan, this giant creature, three faces and three mouths, each mouth continuously gnawing on someone. The right and left mouths have Brutus and Cassius, famous traitors, of Julius Caesar, because according to Dante, betrayal or treachery was the worst thing that someone could do. And so, in Satan's center mouth, being held for all eternity with his head in Satan's grinding teeth, Dante describes seeing Judas Iscariot forever stuck in that position. Judas is, or has been for a long time, fascinating to many people. Because you read about 
the little we have of him in the scriptures, and you have so many questions about what happened, what is going on here. And throughout history, people have talked about Judas, or people like Dante in his poem have described Judas as the absolute worst person to ever have lived. No one worse will come later. And yet there's others, and in other historical writings, which change, uh, have different opinions. Uh, around 300 or so years after Jesus ascended back to heaven, many of the Gnostic Gospels, these extra biblical things that some of the Gnostic teachers were writing began to appear. And one of them is called the Gospel of Judas. Not an inspired work. And in this, in this uh, book, it describes Judas almost like a secret agent. That Judas was actually the best of the apostles because he was needed to trigger the crucifixion. Without him, it wouldn't have happened. So early on, Jesus had informed Judas what he had to do And he was really supporting Jesus in his mission, according to the gospel so-called of Judas. Still others, when talking about Judas, will say, well, he's neither evil, he's neither good, he's really just kind of a pawn. Like, he has no choice. The scripture said he was going to do this. Satan enters his heart, he can't resist it, and so he must do what he does. He's almost just used in that way. And there's probably many other things you can read throughout history, even recently, about Judas as people try to grasp, try to grapple with what was going on with this person? What happened? Why did he do what he did? And so tonight, I want to talk about it a little bit. And tonight we'll talk about Judas and the thief. It's great to be here together tonight. I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be reading from the Word because if we want to know about Judas, that is where to go. That is the book that is inspired. That is the Word that can tell us about him. What little we know, we're going to dive into it and see if we can learn some things about him and I think a few things about ourselves in the process. So when we think about Judas, I think most people, even people that don't have a strong religious background, know that he was one of the 12 apostles. I think that fact has even spread beyond believers. It's general knowledge. People who have heard his name before know he was one of the 12 apostles. He's the one that would betray Jesus at some point. And I'd like to start there because the first thing that we know about Judas is that he began as a believer. And that's not my opinion. We can go to the scriptures when it comes to that. Judas initially gave up everything to follow Jesus. And the reason I know that are passages like Luke 14, starting in verse 28. Jesus speaking says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down? And count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able 
with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We are not given the specifics like we are with some of the apostles, where we see Jesus walk up to them and say, follow me. And they drop what they're doing and follow him. When it comes to Judas, we don't have that narrative. We have it for some, not for all. Judas isn't unique in that we don't have it for him. And yet we can see the pattern. That's how Jesus called his apostles. This is what Jesus expected of disciples. And he was very upfront with them. Jesus never tried to trick people, saying, Test it out. It's not as bad as you've heard. Kind of be with me for a while. Jesus is clear. He tells us here that he wanted them to know what the cost was. If you wanted to follow Jesus, he put his cards on the table, so to speak. Here's what it costs. You've got to be able to renounce everything and become my disciple. And for a while, Judas has done that. He is numbered with the 12. He is out there with Jesus At times, he was sent out by Jesus to preach, same as any of the other disciples. We can read that in Mark chapter 3, that Jesus authorized them, go out, preach some of the things I'm teaching you. And we can assume that Judas did that with the others. The scripture doesn't tell us otherwise. He was given authority by Jesus to cast out demons to perform miracles and heal the sick. Matthew 10 verse 1 tells us that. And nowhere in in these passages does it say Jesus gave authority to 11 of them and then kind of explained to Judas why he could sit this one out in some ways. Jesus treated the 12 as the 12 in these things. And you can feel confident that Judas was out here doing those things early on. And yes, we've already established he will betray Jesus at some point. But the scripture uses interesting language about him. In Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, we're given an account of the disciples. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. That's Jesus. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, Bartholomew, And Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Not Judas, who Jesus would have a use for later, so he put him in the group. Not Judas, who wanted to infiltrate the apostles So pretended to believe and followed along, and Jesus didn't notice. Judas, Judas, who was not yet a traitor, but would become a traitor later. Again, the Psalms, in referencing this, looking forward many, many years, the psalmist says that even my close friend has lifted up his heel against me. Even my close friend... is betraying me. At one time, Judas was a friend of Jesus. I think the scriptures are clear about that, that he began as the other apostles began. But you may be thinking, 
What about some of these other verses? Judas gets some special attention at times in the scripture and has some very harsh things said about him. What about passages like this? Mark 14 and verse 21. Woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That, that's intense. How about John 6, 70? Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Strongly worded again. John 17, verse 12. Here Jesus is praying and in his prayer, talking about the apostles. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. It'd be better if you were never born. One of you is a devil, the son of destruction. These are not pleasant titles or descriptors. And they are all about Judas. So how do we, how do we, how do we reconcile that? The only way I know how to reconcile that is the way we do with other things in Scripture. And the fact that prophecy is not compulsion. Because God knows something will happen, as he knows all things that will happen. And in the instances where he demonstrates, I know what will happen and I'll prove it. I'm going to tell you before it happens. Hundreds of years before it happens sometimes. That doesn't mean he has forced it to happen. And we don't treat other people the same way we might be tempted to treat Judas. He had no choice. This was his destiny. This was his fate. Peter's denial of Jesus was prophesied. Jesus told him, this is what you're going to do. This is when it'll happen. This is how many times you're going to do it. Do we feel like Peter had no ability in that moment when he was accused of knowing Jesus to say, yes, I've been with him? No, we say Peter chose to do that because of fear, because of the situation, because he was tempted to distance himself from Jesus Maybe a more positive one. Paul's life of ministry. When the Lord speaks to Ananias, says, go to see Paul. And, Paul, and he says, I don't want to. He's scary. And yet Jesus says, no, I'm going to show him what he has to suffer for my name's sake. Does that mean Paul had no choice to just become an apostle out of time and to go on his journeys and to do what he did? Jesus prophesied to Ananias that it would happen. I say, No. Paul made that choice, he made that commitment, and he did those things. Even Jesus' own life, which again, for hundreds of years, so much of the Old Testament scripture is telling us about Jesus is going to come, he's going to obey the Father, he's going to sacrifice himself. Does that mean Jesus had no choice in the matter? I think we'd say no. We look at the garden where Jesus prays. He says, I don't want this. Take this cup from me. But not my will, but thine. And so just because something is prophesied, it does not mean God has forced it to occur or is forcing it to occur. In many ways, I think Jesus, the other scriptures, foretell about Judas because As people, I think we would be confused in some ways. 
If this happened and without any warning to us, would we feel like, did something go wrong here? Like everything was going well, he had the 12, and then he's betrayed. Like, what's going on here? But God is telling us, I'm in control of this. I know that this will happen, and yet I'm sending my son to do this anyways. And Jesus says, I'm going to do it anyways, even though I know what's going to happen. So, the natural question is, well, what, what, what went wrong? What could have gone so wrong for someone that was with Jesus every day, day in and day out, and saw so many things that we read about and believe by faith? Someone who was there, someone who is loading up a basket full of pieces of bread and fish that were just impossibly created, How could he have gone so off? I think the answer is unfantastically simple to that question. And it's that Judas encountered the thief. We read from John 12. This is a familiar passage for those. You're probably thinking, what does the the scripture say about Judas? Where does he show up in some of these passages? He makes an appearance here in John 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, reading that passage, some of you have been thinking this since the title slide, and now most of you are thinking this, and that, Alan, you have made an error. Judas is the thief. We just read it. Scripture says he's the guy taking the money from the money bag. And I don't dispute that Judas is a thief. But here's what I would say about the way I've I've titled kind of our lesson here. Let me tell you the truth about The thief I'm talking about. In John 10, starting in verse 7, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here, Jesus is talking about his teaching compared to the teaching of some others. He says, I'm giving life. These others come to steal and kill and destroy. In this context, Jesus is specifically referring to the false teachers, the Pharisaical leaders even of that time, which would present themselves... As shepherds, 
And yet they were thieves because of what they did. They were not giving life to the sheep. They're stealing and robbing and misleading. And yet, I think we can draw a a closer comparison here. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to some of these individuals. Jesus is teaching with less reservation than he often did when talking about some things in John chapter 8. He is incredibly blunt in John chapter 8, and he is giving harsh truth to those who are listening. And in John chapter 8, starting in in verse 40, I think, but now, Jesus says to the Pharisees there, you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And so, yes, those false teachers, those pharisaical leaders, anyone teaching something not in line with what Jesus said could be referred to as a thief. And they are all children of the devil. And Jesus says that's because you do what he does. Paul will write to the Corinthians, warning them about Satan, saying he disguises himself as an angel of light sometimes and that he presents himself like a good idea like something you'd be interested in, like an angel of light. Jesus in his parable of the sower talks about the evil one coming to steal away the word. These are the birds that come and pluck it off the wayside before it takes root. Again, when Paul is speaking about the devil, talks about that he devises schemes. We understand that he has some power and influence on this world he devises schemes he sets snares paul writes to timothy describing just what timothy needs to be watching for and he is eager to cause us harm peter describes him as a roaring lion in first peter seeking people to devour to kill to destroy the thief the father of all thieves and liars and killers and robbers. And though it's not described when or how exactly, possibly in the same way that we encounter him, through his devices, through his schemes, through his snares, through his influence of temptation, at some point Judas encountered this thief in his life. The thief does not control us, however. Satan is not someone that makes us 
do anything. We can resist the devil, James tells us, to draw near to God and resist the devil because when we do that, the devil flees from us. Paul, talking about resisting Satan, says that faith can protect protect against his attacks, against his fiery darts that he continually slings at us. And there's some passages that we have to wrestle with when it comes to this because we read about Satan entering Judas's heart or entering Ananias and Sapphira's heart to get them to lie to the Holy Spirit. And we have to wrestle, what does that mean? Is that literal or is that some accommodative language? We'll cover that in the second hour tonight. The joke. You were too. You were worried. No. The problem here by John twelve, Judas is no longer resisting the thief. He has given in to the thief, to temptations, to doubt, to whatever it was that he no longer felt when it came to Jesus. He now stole money from the money bag, we're told in John chapter 12. He also did not care for the poor, the scripture is key to point out. He said this not because he cared about the poor. He doesn't. He said this so he could steal some extra money at this point. And a little bit later in scripture, we'll see he soon would no longer care about Jesus at all. And would go out and would go find those children of the thief, and devise a scheme to get more money to betray him. And finally, he would be left with nothing but despair. After betraying Jesus, after seeing what unfolds from that, he's in crisis. He runs back to the, to the leaders with the money, throws it at their feet, and says, I, I've, I've sinned against innocent man. And they callously... It's got nothing to do with us. That's your problem. And by this point, the thief stolen everything from Judas. Again, not by force, because Judas has let him. He has nothing left but despair. And we can read in Matthew 27 that that despair and that hopelessness leads him to take his own life. How did we get to this point? This was someone that left everything to follow Jesus. This was someone out there preaching about Jesus to someone else. And some years pass, and now he is so hopeless and in despair and has betrayed the very one that he said he would follow. He's left with nothing but despair. It's sad. It's incredibly sad tragic, and in some ways, it is alarmfully terrifying. Because what happened to Judas can absolutely happen to us. Consider the apostles with Jesus at the Passover feast. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? This is a stunning passage of scripture. Here we have the apostles with Jesus participating in the Passover feast. 
men that have been with him for years, men just like Judas who have been picking up the pieces of bread and fish, putting it in extra baskets, who have been standing on the ship when Jesus says, peace be still to a storm. They have seen demons cast out of people. They have seen blind people seeing again, a crippled man pick up his bed and walk. And here Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And in this moment, there is no one saying, it's got to be that guy. I've never trusted him. He's, he's the, the worst. No one is even professing like Peter saying like, well, I'll never betray you. You know, no one is saying that. All of them, when they hear this, they absolutely believe it's possible it's me. And they all ask Jesus, are you talking about me? They are scared it is them. The apostles absolutely understood this was a possibility even for them after everything they had seen. Paul acknowledged the danger he felt personally in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 9 and verse 27, he writes to them, I'll start in 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul even acknowledged this could happen to me unless I make sure it doesn't. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 A similar thought as he writes in his epistle, starting in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better... For them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Here Peter is talking about people that have heard the truth and have grabbed onto it and have escaped the world through the truth and yet are then entangled in the world again and are overcome by the world. And Peter describes what a disaster that is. The writer of the Hebrew epistle Cautions against anyone who would trample underfoot the Son of God by continuing to sin. If we just use that expression, we said, are you ever worried that you're going to trample underfoot the Son of God? Are you ever going to worry that you're going to walk on top of Jesus and just grind him into the ground as you walk over him? If we said it like that, we'd say, no, I'd never do that. that. That's unthinkable. I would never do that. And yet the Hebrew writer says, when you continue to sin, that's what you are doing. And Jesus himself implores saints who have left their first love to repent. In Revelation, in one of the letters to the church, Jesus implores with these saints saying, you used to be this way. You're not this way anymore. You've left your first love. What happened to Judas absolutely can happen to us. 
So how do we avoid it? How do we make sure that fate of knowing Jesus, of being with him, of believing him and believing in him and what he says, and then yet later deciding, I don't think this is for me anymore. How do we avoid that? Um, The answer is really the same. The answer is outlined in what we read in John chapter 10, is that we choose the good shepherd instead. The thief robs, but Jesus gives life abundantly. And yes, the thief offers things, things that seem appealing. The serpent offered Eve knowledge. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, What did it actually cost her and Adam? Far more than they thought they were paying. But Jesus gives life abundantly. Now again, is it the life that we want at first maybe? And our natural impulses, we think about my own interests and what I like and what I think my life should be. Is that the life Jesus is offering me? Well, no. And Jesus never lies to us about that. We started with Luke. As Jesus said, here's what it costs to be my disciple. But the cost is nothing compared to what is gained. Not just life, but life abundantly. The way that the Greek writes this here, it's almost as if he is saying that he comes to give life and life and life and life and life. Just this endless amount. It's not just a good bit. It's not just more than you'd expect. It is abundant life. That's what Jesus offers. And the thief instead robs the thief destroys but Jesus has become our priest by the power of his indestructible life in Hebrews chapter 7 the Hebrew writer is hoping to better explain why Jesus is so much better than the old law And even though that the old law at the time was good in some ways, but how much Jesus surpasses that law. And in in that verse, verse 16, in talking about Jesus as our priest, he's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement. So not because of who his dad was and his dad and his dad. Because we know Jesus, he's not supposed to be a priest based on that. He's from the wrong tribe. He's not from the priestly tribe. But he's become a priest, not because of that bodily requirement concerning descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. I I heard a sermon recently that focused on that phrase for a while. And that phrase is powerful. And I want to start talking about it more. Because I love that concept that Jesus, the power of his indestructible life, the thief wants to destroy 
And yet Jesus' life is indestructible. No matter what is going on, when we think about the thief's schemes and his snares and his fiery darts and all the things that he brings to put pressure onto us and to entice our own desires so that we are carried away into sin in that manner, Jesus' indestructible life has real power. Do we want to choose that or choose destruction? And the last of those three, the thief kills, but Jesus lives. There's a lot of words you could add after that. Jesus lives forever. Jesus lives on high. Jesus lives exalted. Jesus lives seated on the throne. There's so many ways you could correctly finish that phrase, but in this passage, in Hebrews 7, verse 25, we're told that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. We use that kind of phrase kind of casually when we're like talking about a hobby, like, oh man, like I live for bicycling, I don't know. I live for rock climbing. I live for mystery novels. When we really want to describe, man, I love something a whole lot. I'm really into it. We say, oh, I live for that. The scripture tells us Jesus literally lives to make intercession for us. And he's able to save to the uttermost. Judas had despair. In that moment, seeing what he'd done, coming to his senses to some moment, and he felt, this is hopeless. There is nothing that can be done about this. And he couldn't be alive anymore with that weight in his, in his mind. But what does the scripture say? To the uttermost, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, the power of his indestructible life had grace for Judas if Judas had repented. Paul, talking to Timothy about grace, about Jesus saving sinners, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and full, deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or of whom I am chief. In this passage, he doesn't say, Jesus came to save sinners, of whom Judas is the worst. No, when looking at his own life, Paul says, I'm way worse than him. I look at what I've done. I'm the utmost, the foremost sinner. And yet Jesus came into the world to save me. Paul often in his letters talks about his own life as a way to describe how great God's grace is. Because Paul wanted people to understand if his grace is available for me, it's unquestionably available for you and for others. And that is who our Savior is, always living to make intercession for us. He 
lives for that. So you may feel sometimes some of the weight of despair, that weight of guilt, that sorrow of looking back and saying, what have I done with my life? What have I done to this person? What have I done um, to, to this relationship? What have I done to God with how I've lived? And you will be tempted to feel some despair sometime possibly. And you will be tempted by the thief and his schemes to feel like it's over for you. God is interested in good people, not you. But that is so wrong. He's able to save to the uttermost. Do you believe that? I wish that you would. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We started talking about Judas in the lesson tonight. And he still remains a puzzling figure. Someone that at times I want more. I want to know what happened. I want to know what changed his journey. I want to know what he was thinking. I want to know so much about this story. But the scripture has told me what I need to know. The scripture has told me who Jesus is. The cost of being his disciple. And what Satan, the thief, is always trying to do to keep me from becoming a disciple. And scripture is filled with people that give me the example of here's how you become a disciple. Here's what you do. Here's how you show faith. Here's how you live by faith. And scripture has examples of others, like Judas, of people that don't do that, ultimately. And they make a poor choice. And they give in to the thief. The thief and God are not locked in some kind of equal, equally matched battle. Satan is not even in the arena with God, let alone in the ring. But you can give in to him. And I can, and I have, and I know you have as well. But praise God that the good shepherd lives to make intercession for us. Where are you at tonight? When you consider your own time with the Lord, and you consider your faith, your adherence to what Jesus has said, to what the Spirit has said in the Word, only you know, where are you at? Are you in a place where you'd say, I've left everything and I'm trying to follow. Are you in a place where you feel like, and I've been listening to the thief for a while. And I've been starting to dabble in some of the old things that I put off. They're starting to come back into my life. I'm starting to become entangled by them and overcome by them, as Peter would say. If that's true... Don't despair. Take heart. Have hope. And have faith that our Savior lives.
to save even the uttermost. If there's anything we can do to help you tonight, we would beg you, come forward now while we stand and while we sing this song.